You're listening to the Ecclesia of Noonan Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, check out our website, ecclesianoonan.com. As we've mentioned is uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Why, why start Advent season with the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin? Why do that? Well, week one, the theme historically week one of Advent has always been hope. And it's very difficult to preach hope to a humanist sort of self-sufficient society. So uh, you're not a humanist, you're a Christian, but you live in a humanist society and you are party to the kinds of messages that say uh, you don't need hope because you are hope in and of yourself, right? You can do what you want, when you want, how you want. Uh, you, you are able to accomplish anything within and of yourself. Um, you need nothing. Certainly you don't need hope for sin because what's that, right? And so uh, the goal today is to put us into a place where at the end or the middle or the beginning of the sermon, we can truly look and say, quote, we've lost our faith in humanity, right? That's the, that's the goal. Now, now that's, a, that's a terrible thing. As a matter of fact, there's probably no greater offense than to make the goal of a lecture for you to lose your faith in humanity, right? Um, but uh, as far as humanity separate from Christ, that's certainly the goal today. Uh, and I hope it sets you on a path of hope. And I hope it sets you on a path of celebrating uh, this festival, this, this Advent season. Uh, so just to reiterate what the practice of Advent is, um, as some of you were raised doing it, others were not, uh, we are to celebrate um, Christ in Christian festival, specifically the coming of our Lord, uh, while also participating in a shadow festival. Everyone say shadow festival. Shadow Festival. And the Shadow Festival is, um, pardon notifications, um, Shadow Festival is the final coming of our Lord to judge and to save. So you're, but we're not just saying we're celebrating Jesus coming in a manger. There's, we're actually celebrating and anticipating both comings at the same time. That's the goal. Um, that's what the, the Latin word Adventus infers, that there's a, a coming, right? Uh, so here's a summary description in terms of, of what it is that we're doing during this time. Uh, if you're taking notes, expectant waiting. You can write that down. Expectant waiting. Hopeful anticipation. Expectant waiting. Hopeful anticipation. And lastly is joyful preparation. And so that, that can and will not only characterize this festival, but uh, hopefully will set you on a course where your life looks to the coming of our Lord, Revelation, uh, hasten the day, come Lord Jesus, right? That we prepare, anticipate, wait expectantly, hopefully, joyfully, that coming. So the, uh, the, the timeline of, of the weeks, week one, two, three, and four, hope, faith, joy, peace, um, and there are all kinds of different uh, sort of characters within the grand drama of the birth of Jesus that lend us to that. Um, <clears throat> 
And again, for your notes, our Advent reading was Romans chapter 15, verses 12 to 13, which we read earlier in our service today. Romans chapter 15, verses 12 to 13. Um, so we are, again, here pointing towards, um, pointing towards uh, hope. Um, Paul's message um, is so timely uh, for us today because now more than ever, the spirit of Christmas is not the spirit of Christ. Uh, it is the spirit of human goodness uh, juxtaposed to sort of the gospel. And the message of Christmas is also the message of the tabernacle. And the message of the tabernacle uh, is the dwelling place of God is with man. Okay? So you, so you must remember this, right? The dwelling place of God is with man. All right, here we go. Uh, point one, uh, verse one, chapter two, is dead in sin. Dead in sin. That's, 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 that's the goal there, right? Uh, you and I are all of us dead in sin. Well, let me just tell you what dead in sin means. It means that you are unable to save yourself. Um, so please note here that when he's talking about sin, he's not saying, hey, you're, um, you're, you're, a, you're in a punishment, and that punishment is sin. Uh, and, you know, not only is the sin sort of the action, but it's also the punishment, and you're kind of in a timeout. You're in a sinful human timeout. No, you're in a morgue, right? A morgue, uh, a funeral home, uh, a of people where dead people are, right? So when we say dead in sin, we mean unable completely to save oneself. Completely unable to save oneself. To which people may say, well, we are able to save ourselves because we, we repent and believe. Doesn't that allow us to save ourselves? No, no. You don't save yourself through faith and repentance. God saves you um, by giving you a new heart and once he's given you a new heart, then you partake in these given actions of, of faith and repentance. That's what certainly happens there. Uh, so when we say you're dead in sin, we mean you're dead in sin. So there's a really bleak picture, right, that, uh, of, of helplessness, right? And humans don't want to be painted as helpless at all. Quite to the contrary. Uh, we're self-made, self-sufficient able to do, able to provide, able to thrive, able to survive without anyone else or need of anyone else. That's completely the opposite message of dead and sin. And that's how verse one says, I mean, he starts off chapter two, by the way, he's been praying for a whole chapter and how he starts at, um, sort of his information, not in prayer form is, Hey, by the way, when you were dead and your sins and trespasses, right? Um, uh, for, for you littles, I'll tell you all this, Tariki and, and Colin, uh, and the word iniquity uh, in the Bible also means the word sin. It's just it's, it's another way of saying you did something wrong. Also, our word here that says trespass or trespasses, that's just another word for sin, right? So the Bible uses a lot of colorful language to show you, hey, you've sinned against God or you've disobeyed. Um, so, but that's what sin is. That's, that's what it means. You could say, sort of alongside of verse 1, that you were a slave to sin. So... Uh, Paul is saying here, you're dead in sin, but he actually said it a different way um, in, over in Romans chapter 6. Why don't you turn there with me if you have your Bibles. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. 
Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. He uses different language, but he's painting the same picture. And the picture that he's painting is you are unable to uh, do anything really but sin. We say you're dead in sin. We don't just mean you're sort of just passive in sin. You are in active rebellion against God, which verse 2 tells us all about. But let's just take a look at this other um, this other uh, phraseology that Paul employs here. Um, Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed, verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So verse 17 talks about the notion where you were slaves of sin, meaning that all you do is sin. Right? You wake up in the morning and you sin. So when we say you're dead in sin, it means so whether you're a slave or dead in sin, it just means that you're sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. And people say, well, what about do-gooders? What about people who, you know, um, <clears throat> do all of this good and donate all of this money, uh, especially around Christmas time? And, and I want to make this perfectly clear, okay? Uh, is there goodness in the world? Of course there is. Uh, there's goodness in the world, um, and, and actually believers in the doctrine of common grace enjoy God's goodness, uh, that they enjoy his gifts, that they enjoy his, his grace, right? But um, even the good that people do, if they are separate from Christ, then it is good that is attempted to be done separate from God and therefore it is offense to God. Does that make sense? Why? Because the Bible says that all good things come from above, right? So I'm going to try to do good, and I'm going to try to do good separate from God, and good that is separated from the life of God is ultimately an affront to God. And, of course, that's offensive. I mean, people that, that blows people's dictionaries out of the water of, of, of what good is, right? And, of course, the Bible holds to a different standard about what good is. That's even offensive to us. We're all like, well, that's offensive. Um, uh, but, but the truth is, is if you understand that God is the standard, right? Um, and uh, God is the one writing the law. Um, then, then it becomes perfectly clear exactly what's happening here. So believers, just so that we're clear here about what verse 1 says before we move on to verse 2, unbelievers are utterly unable to help themselves spiritually. I'm going to say it one more time. Unbelievers are utterly unable to help themselves spiritually. This should bring a great deal of compassion from every Christian, which, by the way, can I say I have such a hard time with. I have such a hard time with, particularly in the South, where everyone is calling themselves a Christian, but me, in, uh, in my own viewpoint, don't have the clear vision to discern that clearly these people, though calling themselves believers, are very lost, right? And because they're professing to be a Christian, I immediately become angry at them when clearly their lives are utterly dominated night and day, month after month, year after year of nothing but, but sin, right? They, 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 they are reflecting a dominion, and the dominion that they are reflecting is not one of the rule of God, right? 
And so uh, this is difficult, uh, but, but it is a great place Monday morning to walk into your work and re- realize, man, sinners are unable to help themselves spiritually, and I should be kind and generous and gracious, and I should pray and seek to be light to people who are unbelievers around me. That's, that's what I should seek to do. Here's verse 2. So uh, the point of verse 1 in your notes was dead in sin. The point of verse 2 uh, um, uh, for note takers is active rebellion against God. So verse 2, active rebellion against God. Active just means you're working, right? You're not passive, you're not sitting, but you're, you're working, right? So can you be dead in your sin, unable to save yourself and unable to help yourself spiritually and still rebel against God? Yes, you can. Uh, so uh, verse 2 is active rebellion against God. Um, uh, Colin, you or, you or TT want to define what the word rebellion, rebellion means? What does it mean to rebel? If you rebel... Rebellion. Rebellion means that <laughs> she's like, I don't know what rebellion is. I know nothing about that. Uh, rebel. You think? Oh, we're gonna have a good daddy-daughter talk after service. Praise God. Okay, so um, rebellion or rebel is someone who comes up against another individual, right? Uh, So a rebel is someone who comes up against another. So if you're a a rebellion is this whole way of life, right? This whole course of life that comes up against God. So active rebellion against God. This is how verse two puts it. Verse two calls it the course of the world being disobedience, right? So they kind of put it in a different way. The course of the world is disobedience. That's what verse two says. Our point simply says act disobedience or rebellion against God. Verse 2 says uh, here in your Bibles, in which you once walked following the course of this world. What's the course of the world? The course of the world is is being dead in sin, being slaves to sin, uh, but at the same time being actively rebellious against God, unable to help oneself spiritually, following uh, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Boy, that's a bleak verse, isn't it, right? Um, so it's showing someone who's dead in sin, who is enslaved to sin, and not only that, but someone who is um, active in their rebellion against God. So they're following the course of the world. Um, they're following their own flesh. And, and here it gets down to brass tacks and it just says there's, there's another outside force that's coming in there and that is the work of the devil. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you all know what the, Trini- the doctrine of the Trinity is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Luther, in his uh, sort of treatises, made it very clear what he thought was a very unholy trifecta, right? Not a trinity, but an unholy trifecta, uh, or an unholy three. And that, the ultimate unholy three to him was the flesh, okay? And the flesh is just your sinful heart, okay? Number two, the world, or in this case, the course of the world, okay? So the flesh, which is your sinful heart, number one, the world... Uh, which is the course of this world here. And then we're three, the devil, okay? Or the forces of evil. And so these three uh, are sort of what's in in view here. So if you can imagine someone who's completely unable to help themselves, picture this. Here's, here's an unbeliever who's completely unable to help themselves spiritually. They're completely dead in sin. They're in active rebellion against God by their own nature. And yet, in addition to all of that, 
condition, all of that. They have a spirit by which is, is driving the course of their life. And the spirit that is driving the course of their life is, in fact, this very spirit of Antichrist, right? It is, it is the spirit of evil, uh, particularly it's embodied here and personified in Satan himself, right? Or, or as, as Paul says, uh, the prince of the power of the air. Um, now, now, here's the problem, friends. The problem is, is that most humans don't believe that they are disobeying. Most humans believe that they are basically good. Heads up, right? Heads up. Most of our friends, most of our acquaintances, any enemies that we may have, whoever they may be, friends and relatives, people that we will never meet, the general rule of thumb is this. People are basically good. These verses are a complete affront to that. Complete. And yet, while we would sit here and shake our heads today, what is it that gives us most grief in life and in the workplace? Our expectation. Our expectation that those lost people should be good. Now, so, so does that make sense? Now, I, I'm preaching to the choir. I should be sitting right next to you with a finger in my face, right, going, hey, what's wrong, right? Because I also believe that. I believe, or at least I, I, I don't believe that people are basically good, but when I go to work, I, I believe that those people should basically be good, and I become very, very, very upset when they're not, like really upset. In my own ease and convenience, and that's only going to happen if they're good or whatever I say good is that particular moment of my day, right? And these people are dominated by us, completely unable to save themselves. And, and this is what's really interesting. Uh, he starts off the verse, verse one, uh, and he says, And you were dead. You were dead. And here's the vocabulary of verse two, in which you once walked, right? So he's, he's trying to paint a picture of what humanity looks like while also tying them to it and saying, hey, this is from whence you came, right? This, is, this was you. This is what this all, all looked like. Um, so when we say depravity uh, or uh, any kind of doctrine of sin, we have to talk about being inclined to sin. We have to talk about being wicked, uh, of course, our world doesn't believe this because we don't believe in any kind of moral standard. We surely don't believe in any kind of cosmic moral standard. We hardly believe in a physical one, right? Um, so uh, we believe that God's law is right, right? So the moral law of God is transcendent over time and the covenants, by the way. Um, and we believe that, that we are to order our lives by God's law, right? Um, so that we, you know, we start there with the Ten Commandments and then the, the constituting of Israel. Um, so again, let me just reiterate this um, so that you, you don't forget. Paul's goal in writing the church of Ephesus was to encourage the people. It was not to depress them. It was not to bring them down. Um, but it was to help the believer and put their hope in the right place, namely in God and not put it in the human heart. Not put in the human heart. Let's go on to verse 3. Verse 3 is really an extension of verse 2. It's saying the same things in a different way and a couple of new things uh, in verse 3. And this is our final point here today. Those who are spiritually dead are dominated by the world. Those who are spiritually dead 
are dominated by the world. That's verse 3. Those who are spiritually dead, verse 3, are dominated by the world. Uh, Paul puts it this way. They are driven by selfly, by selfish passion, right? So they are driven by, the, the, sort of the battery that gets them going is their own selfish passions. And, and notice he's not just putting passions as if it were a body issue, as the Greeks would love to do, but he also includes the word mind, right? Corrupt mind, corrupt body, um, selfish passion. Here's what verse 3 says. I'm going to read it to you. Um, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, we've been as offensive as we possibly can be by reading this to anyone. I mean, just uh, imagine the resume as we're reading it to someone. Hey, the Bible here in these three verses say that you're dominated by the spirit of Satan, says that you're dead in sin, completely unable to save yourselves, um, that, that, that you're, you, you follow the course of the pattern of this world. Uh, if you're an unbeliever, you do everything that you do uh, out of the passions of your own corrupt mind and heart. And oh, by the way, before we end this, you're you're destined for wrath. So much so that your identity is wrapped up in it and you're called a child of wrath. It doesn't get, it doesn't get any more offensive than this, right? I mean, th this, is, this is verbal abuse in 21st century America. Verses one through three constitute libel, right? Real offense. And yet you and I look at it as God's revealed truth, right? For people who are separated from the life of God. And by the way, verse 3 also says, among whom we all once lived. There he is again, tying us to this behavior, right? Again, every single verse, every single verse ties us to the behavior as believers. All the believers that he's writing to, he wants them to know, not only in verse 1, but again in verse 2, and again in verse 3. Hey, you were tied into all of this. This, this is from whence you have come. This is where, where you were. So here's my question. Uh, after having read through this, right? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Are you conditioned? This is a question for me to you. Are you conditioned by physical desires and physical impulses? Are you conditioned by that? And the answer is yes, and you are. Um, and yet, whilst you are, you're called to be sort of coming out of it, right? Sort of leaving all of that behind. Um, so physical impulses, right? A neurologist would just look at this sermon and go, this sermon and this, this, this man, this ancient writer knows nothing about dopamine, right? And uh, he's just got it all wrong. He's trying to... In a, pre-scientific way explain uh, the human condition and implore him he just doesn't know right and of course what we do that a modern modern neurologist we, we say thank you for your contributions we appreciate you we hope that you have continued success in the field of science we appreciate all the good advancements that you're making um and uh the human mind and body is completely corrupt 
um, tainted, tainted by a selfishness uh, that is spiritual in nature, right? Um, and no, um, all your scans and all your research don't have all the right answers. Uh, they can certainly help us understand humanity, and we're grateful for them. But um, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't um, constitute divine revelation. So are, are you and I, or are we conditioned by physical desires and impulses? Another question here is, what, is, what does children of wrath mean? What does that mean? What does it mean to be a children of wrath? Well, firstly, and just very simply, it just means that you're destined for God's wrath. Does that make, does that make sense? So being a ch child of wrath just means that you're destined for judgment. That's what it means, right? Very, very simply. Um, the second thing it means is that you reflect the dominion of the world, right? Rather than reflecting God's rule, when someone looks at you and goes, that life is ordered by God, right? Or that life is ordered by something different than I'm ordered by, right? Um, then they look at you and they go, that person's life is ordered by God's law. Here, the idea is that the unbeliever is, com they're completely dominated by the world, or that is to say, their life reflects the rule, the reign, the word is dominion, the rule and reign of the world and of the self, right? That they are constantly selfish in nature like the rest of mankind, completely corrupt in body and mind, doing what they want, when they want, because they want, and how they want. Uh, verse 2 spoke of, and I quote, the course of this world, and that's particularly what we're talking about here today. Our culture, listen to me, our culture believes that desires that come into the mind, desires, which by the way, we're talking about here today, desires that come into the mind or aspirations that come into the mind or dreams that come into the mind uh, are all of them given by God or an equivalent. Does that make sense? Every desire, so, so the, the culture at large, right? The culture at large believes that our dreams and our desires, these these desires are, are all God-given. And yet when we look at some of our basest feelings, our basest dreams, our basest desires, what do we see about those? They can become very selfish. Some of you experience that um, in your own life from an outside source or from your own life uh, over this Thanksgiving holiday. Right? And yet when we look at, at some, some of our when we look into the human heart, and that's what we're looking for, God-given gifts separated from God, what we can find are desires that are very destructive, desires that are very selfish. Some people naturally lie. Like they are, they are prone to naturally not tell the truth. What about that, right? Well, this is, this is, this is an impulse. This is a desire, right? This is something that's not sanctioned uh, by God, um, 
And we think that everything that comes into us, every desire that comes into us is just what it means to be a human. We just need to go do that because that's what makes me a human. And yet, listen to me, when we see Jesus, when, when you get the opportunity to study the doctrine of the humanity of Jesus, you learn so many wonderful things. And one of the things that you learn when you study the doctrine of the humanity of Jesus is that Jesus is the perfect human. And humanity, perfectly expressed, is always self-sacrificing in nature. That's what the perfect human looks like. The perfect human looks selfless. The perfect human does thrive, does enjoy things in, uh, in life, right? Goodness, gifts that God gives, right, that are not at the expense of others. But what it means to be perfectly human, if we're looking at Jesus, and we have to because that's the only way we can see the perfect human, is someone who is self-sacrificing. That's what it means to be everything that a child of wrath is not. That's what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian uh, is to, as my wife likes to use, to uh, the, the phrase via Dolorosa, right? To follow down this way of great sacrifice, this, this road, uh, this road of Christian sacrifice. Uh, this is what it means to be a Christian, which is quite the opposite from among whom we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let me ask you a question. When, do you think that when and the average Joe off the street would read verses like Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20, or read here, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. What, in fact, would they think? Would they just look at this as, this is just nonsense. Like, this is, this is mythological. This is, this, is, this is all just nonsense. Complete nonsense. I, I don't believe in this. Um, yeah, I, 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 think, I think they probably would, too. Um, and so what happens is people think that, ultimately, they are going in the right direction, don't they? People separated from the life of God look at God's re revelation or truth about humanity and say, well, that's, that's just wrong. How many of you have ever been on a trip, or maybe it wasn't a trip, maybe you were just looking for something in the grocery store, but let's say perhaps even you were on a trip. You were on a trip and you thought you were going the right way. Like you were, and you were confident that you were going the right way. And you went that way for a long time until you realized I was completely wrong. Like all of my confidence was misplaced. I was... I thought I was going in the right direction, but I ended up somewhere completely in the wrong way. Some of you have gotten really specific memories of how, how, how that looks like, right? Or those, those funny stories that go along with them. And just like those funny stories, just like that, that wrong direction, just like that misplaced confidence, people who are dead, listen to me, people who are dead in sin, who are separated from the life of God, are very, very confident in where they are going, and they are still heading the wrong direction. And they are unable to help themselves otherwise directionally or have a moral compass or a spiritual one, for that matter, in where they are going. Completely heading the wrong direction. We live in a world where not only is the world heading in the wrong direction, but they are supremely confident that is the right one. The Bible put it this way when we studied the book of Judges. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And of course, what is the book of Judges but an absolute train wreck of humanity, isn't it? Um, Judges chapter 17, verse 6 says the same thing as the theme verse of the last verse of the book in chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if our right, if our own desires make, is, is what is ultimate, then, then, then we're in real trouble, right? That's the reason we have to have God's law, right? That's the reason we have to get God's standard. That's the reason we have to have Jesus' example uh, to, to look before us and say, no, no, this, this is how humans flourish. Not by doing what they want, when they want, how they want, because they want, right? Um, but they are to order their lives, their emotions, their desires, and their passions, and they're to check them against God's law. That's, that's, that's what they're supposed to do. I know you don't want to love your enemy, but I'm telling you that the way of human flourishment is loving your enemy. But that's not what I want to do. But that's, right, you're, we don't do what we want to do, right? The perfect human is, the per, is per, per Jesus, and his example is the one who is constantly... Um, uh, self-sacrificing. So let's segue to hope here. Today is about hope. And if I would have come and preached you a sermon about hope, I have no doubt that we could have gotten to the place where we would have gotten to a place of where you could properly put your hope in Christ, right? But the goal for today was to show you that you cannot uh, put your hope in humanity. And you certainly cannot put your hope in the human heart and that sort of the, the sacred vault that is the human heart is not the place where you should go ch chasing uh, hope and uh, satisfaction, right? Um, but ultimately, you should look for it in God. So today is all about painting that, that sort of bleak picture so that you can see the glories of verse 4, right? And the glories of verse 4 say... And I quote, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That doesn't at all sound like someone who's dead in sin. That sounds like someone who is alive with Christ. Not dead in sin, but alive with Christ. Right? Um, not enslaved to sin, but have been completely delivered and rescued out of it. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your sin and your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So what is it that we're celebrating here? What is this, this coming, this incarnation of Christ that we're celebrating while also celebrating uh, and looking forward to the future hope of Jesus coming back again uh, at the end of all things. Uh, it, it is uh, th that kind of hope is found here in Romans chapter 15, which is our opening Advent uh, reading, which I'll close here with us today. Romans chapter 15, verses 12 through 13. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that's faith, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.
recent study was done uh, on um, uh, the, you know, what, what does it take for someone to live the longest life, right? Because all these studies are always coming up, and every month we get a new one. You know, a study was done in South America, and if you take two naps a day, then you're going to live to be at least 100 or whatever it is, right? And so there's always these new things that are coming out. And it recently said that that long life, long long age is tied to the ability to be anticipating something that is to come. That's what they said. And, and, and ergo, people need something to look forward to. And if they hope, they need to have hope. And if they don't have hope, then that's not good for their span of life, right? And yet today is all about hope. Today is about that when later today or tomorrow you go and you live in the trenches of humanity around you that you wouldn't despair, but that you would place your hope God because you know where hope is supposed to lie, that your hope is ultimately supposed to lie um, with God. All right, we're going to take the Lord's table um, uh, today, and I'm going to ask uh, Andrew and Ben if you guys will kindly serve us the Lord's table. Today I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have that offering before us today. Lord, we do love you, and we thank you so much for your rich, rich grace to us. I thank you that you have set us up for hope, and I pray that you would help us to put our hope firmly in you, that your law would be our hope, your, your person and our relationship with you would be our hope, your, our future grace and salvation would be uh, our great hope, and, and, and your coming, your promises true for us to claim and blessings to enjoy would be our great hope. God, help us to see very clearly with a sober mind, God, where we are misplacing our hope and putting satisfaction in places that they shouldn't be, God, Convict us of sin today and convict us of misplaced allegiances and misplaced hope. And God, uh, help us to be kind to people around us with such love and gentleness and graciousness with which you have also loved us. Thank you for the grace that we see, that we pray for today, that we see in this table as we come to eat the gospel today. And, and understand all of the beauty uh, that we enjoy in it. And, and we pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. You're free to take the Lord's table. Thanks for listening to the Ecclesia of Newton Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to show your support, find out more information, or hear more like this, check out our website, ecclesianewton.com.